Well, you guys are, are in for a treat this morning. Joel is a, is a gifted man to communicate God's word and the future of the church there in Jamaica is in good hands as you will experience this morning. Joel and Samora have quite a story in getting to where they are and I just appreciate the, the faith. I'm affected by their faith as they've taken steps on, on what's been a multi-year journey to be planting a church in Jamaica. They're, they're Jamaica's home for them. That's where they're from. Uh, but they disrupted the whatever normalcy looked like years ago and picked up their family. Uh, their three children uh, moved to the States, became part of Sovereign Grace, went to the pastor's college, uh, served the next year in an internship. So there was a, a year in the PC, a year doing internship, and, and now they have been into their first almost year of having established the church there in Jamaica. So they, they relocated and then had to relocate again uh, to get settled there again in Jamaica. And so these have been enormous steps of faith uh, to get rooted in Jamaica with a, a small group of folks who are in faith together with them to see a church get established. That, you know, you and I live in a day where uh, it's not as no locations around the world don't have some churches in them. But as you can see in America, this is true all over the world, there are many churches who have abandoned the biblical principles that are so vital to what God had in mind for the church. And so it, it's, a, it's a battle not only to reach unbelievers, it's a battle to reach those who have been confused by a partial gospel in, in what they've often hear. And so Joel and Samora are here not only to serve our church in partnering with them, but it's also their anniversary was just this past week. How many years? 15-year anniversary. <clears throat> So they picked New Orleans as a place that they wanted to come and celebrate their anniversary. So guys, we are in for a treat to hear uh, the adventure of year two that's getting started and how we can walk with them into the future. So please listen carefully. Uh, there's, there's notes to be taken as the message is preached, but there's a heart to be knit together as God has put this family into our family as well. So listen for how to pray for them how the Lord would lead you to participate with them. I'm going to come back at the end of the service. We're going to pray for them at the close of the service. We're also going to take up those cards. If the Lord's leading you during the service to write in a number there or to go on the app and write that down, please do that. But please welcome Joel Bain to our pulpit this morning. Good morning. It is wonderful to be back with you. Um, it's wonderful, even more wonderful to be back with you with my wife this time. I was by myself the last time, last year. Coming here again is a landmark for me and, and for us, uh, particularly because when I came last August, we were very much on the cusp of just beginning the work in Jamaica. I went back home and we had our first interest meeting within about two weeks of 
my visit here. Just gathering people who had expressed an interest in what we were doing. Um, so being back here is, it's just been a, a, an opportunity for me to reflect and to give thanks to God for what he's been doing and to give thanks for you. Uh, what Keith read in Philippians is very much how our hearts feel towards you. You are our partners. So as much as I'm coming to rob you, I'm coming to rob my partners. <laughs> So it's wonderful to be here with you. We consider you to be our family. Um, I was just talking to a few people this morning and somebody was saying, I've been praying for you over the last year. I can't tell you how much that means to us. Um, We are not that far away. Jamaica is a a, a couple hundred miles south of of Florida. We're kind of hidden below Cuba there. Um, But in some, some ways and on some days, we feel very alone in the work we're doing. Um, A lot of people don't understand why we're doing this with so many churches in Jamaica, but we know that you are praying for us, and we know that other churches in Sovereign Grace are praying for us, and that seriously encourages my heart uh, week to week, just hearing from people and knowing that people are lifting us up to the Lord. I bring greetings from Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. They all know about you, uh, and they know I'm here. Uh, I, I hear they've been having a good time without me. You know, but, you know, I won't take that personally, but, you know, uh, just glad to be here with you. I want to run you through some of what's been going on, give you guys a bit of an update. I can't share in that much detail, so I've tried to write some things down. I hope I'll stick to them, but now I'm kind of really excited to be sharing with you guys, so we'll see how it goes. So... When we started gathering people for church, we decided to do that through two small groups. One was meeting in Kingston, the main city, and one was meeting outside of Spanish Town, which is the main town closer to where our church meets. And that process proved to be tremendously important in passing on our values to those who decided to join us, particularly the centrality of the gospel in our thinking and living, and in building a culture uh, for our community. It was amazing to watch people become friends. I had a a close friend uh, who has gone through a lot of trauma in church and consented to be a part of one of these groups. And to watch her build relationships with others and begin to open up was amazing. It was amazing to watch within a few weeks another guy in the group who didn't know her before praying for her with tears. So God was at work just just in, in causing us to come together and to grow in love for each other. Uh, we, Sam and I went out for dinner with a couple from our core team the, uh, the other night, and they were telling us that another couple who they didn't know before we started all of this, uh, they had gone out for lunch the other day just to get to know each other better. And I was like, that's great. I didn't even tell them to do that. So that's wonderful. Yeah. So out of those small groups, of a core team of 11 adults and nine children formed, and we together have been doing the heavy lifting required to host a gathering on a Sunday. We meet in an area called Caymanus Estate in the parish of St. Catherine, which is to the west of Kingston, Jamaica's capital. So we started Sunday services on January 6th, and it was a tremendous, a joyful day. But the joy has continued each Sunday as we've gathered, as we sing of Jesus, as we lift up prayers in his name, as we welcome each other the way he has welcomed us, as we preach the good news of his completed work and the implications it has for our lives both now and forever. And people have been coming. Since January, we've had the opportunity to welcome 266 guests on Sundays. (laughs) 
Our average attendance is around 50 each Sunday. Our largest Sunday was the day we had breakfast together after, after church and just said to people, come and, and eat. There's no charge for this. <laughs> One third of our guests are children. So we have a tremendous opportunity um, just serving uh, these kids and just helping them to understand the gospel, coming alongside these parents who are seeking to raise their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're drawing people, and some of them are coming from Kingston, which is about 12 to 15 miles from, from where we meet. Uh, most of them are coming from nearby communities. There's a community called Portmore, a huge suburb. There are also communities around Spanish Town, And there's some coming from Caymanas Estate itself. And I, I, I don't know, I grew up in church, and it shocks me to be in a situation now where people are coming to church, and they're inviting people without you asking them to do so. You know, so it, it means that they're appreciating what we're doing. Um, this past Sunday, we had a mother who had attended for the first time with her daughter the week before, and she came back and invited a friend. Most of the people who are coming to us are already believers in Christ. Some of them are nominal Christians, but a couple of weeks ago, we had the joy of welcoming a young lady who's a Muslim, who was invited by some of her friends who attend regularly. So we are just delighted to have those kinds of gospel opportunities happening already. A few weeks ago, a young mother was a guest for the first time at our service. She had heard about our service at a funeral I had preached at just after Easter. She looked us up online and she started listening to our messages. And she said, oh, I, I know all of you guys. I, I know you, I know Sheldon, I know Sean. So she decided she wanted to come and visit. And she came one Sunday. We met her. She came back. Two weeks later, she brought her husband, her son, and they brought guests with them that Sunday. She told me that in coming to visit us, she had prayed to the Lord about three things. She had asked first that she could be welcomed. And she said, I felt welcome from the time I hit the parking lot. She asked that her son would be comfortable. Halfway through our service, her son was sitting with Sean, one of our pastors, and Sean was engaging him. She had asked the Lord that the gospel, that the word of God would be central to everything we do. And it was. And thankfully, it is like that every Sunday. Praises to be to Jesus for that. The other day we welcomed a gentleman who lives in a community not far from where we meet. He was searching online for a church and he was kind of throwing in words like church, preaches grace kind of thing, you know, because he had been in church and he was used to the experience of just being told what he needs to be doing. So he started listening to our sermons and decided to come to visit. I can't tell you how encouraging it is to me that God is drawing people to us who desire to hear the word of God preached, who desire to hear about Jesus and just be grounded in him and have an appetite for God's word being preached. I mean, I'm in shock. People come to church for preaching? Like, that happens? <laughs> in the last few months, people have been inviting us into their lives, and it's been a tremendous privilege. Uh, it's amazing to me that just after a few months of knowing us, people would, would reveal things that are going on in their lives and bring us into situations, bring us into their struggles, bring us into their suffering, bring us into their sin. And we have the privilege of just pointing them to the sufficiency and power of Jesus. We're getting opportunities to counsel people who have suffered sexual abuse. We have opportunities to guide engaged couples who are uh, into premarital counseling. Those we have are seeing Jesus in ways they've never seen him before. And I don't just mean theologically. They're experiencing Jesus through being cared for and encountering Jesus in his word as it is preached and sung and as we pray. 
God has been doing several things that have surprised us. And a lot of those surprises surround our meeting at facilities owned by a golf club. We've had the opportunity to build relationships with the staff there. Now, when we first came in for that interest meeting last August, they were kind of suspicious of us. You know, the pastors don't wear earrings in Jamaica. They're looking and they're like, what kind of church is this? What are these guys up to? But as they've gotten to know us, they've really come to love us, and we've come to love them. We know their names. We get to pray for them. People come to us for prayer. The staff will come and say, can you pray for me for this situation? One of them got ill the other day, and we were able to reach out and get in touch and just pray for her. Uh, it's been amazing to watch them as they've kind of gotten to know us and as they've adjusted to us. At Easter, several of the staff members were sitting at the back of our service just listening to the gospel. Um, They'll be singing along as they learn songs. We, at one point, we gave out Bibles. We were giving Bibles to people who were coming to church. And the staff came and said, can we get Bibles too? So it was just amazing to be able to give them a gift of a Bible. The golf club is a kind of busy place around summer. There are a lot of weddings and events. And so it means we get to interact with more people than those who have come to our service. So one of our, our members who, who serves in the parking lot has had great conversations with people who are in and out doing things and bringing in equipment. One guy the other day just started to tell his life story, you know, as they stood in the parking lot together. Uh, we get to interact with people who are setting up for weddings, and they hear the gospel all the time. It's just amazing. We thought we'd be kind of away in this golf club, uh, off the beaten path, but people are there and just hearing what's going on. This past Sunday, a lady walked into our service, and so I got to hear her story a little bit. She had come, she lives in Canada, had come to Jamaica to spend some time with her husband. He wanted to play golf that Sunday morning. So she was just there and started to hear the music and the singing and decided, oh, let me come and join the service. And it was just a blessing to have her. As we head into year two, one of our biggest strategic priorities is for my family to move to Caymanas Estate. After much prayer and knocking on a lot of doors, God has finally opened up a way for us to do that. Uh, we expect to be able to rent a home in the area beginning in October. So we're going through another transition again now to move to a different area. We've had a good number of visitors from that immediate community, but it's been very difficult to build relationships with them because we come in on Sundays and then go back to Kingston. So we're looking forward to, to, looking forward to the opportunity to deepen those relationships, to get back in touch with people who have visited, to have them in our home. We're, we're hoping also that we'll be able to strengthen our relationship with the golf club. Um, some of the staff really seem to have an interest in what's going on. There may be the opportunity for me to do a Bible study with them during the week because I'll be living right there. And I'm, I'm really praying particularly, and you can pray with us for this, for opportunities to build friendships with men. Um, as is common in many churches, the women kind of lead the way into the church community. So we've seen many cases where wives will come and kind of scout ahead of time and then they'll bring their husbands and children and the husbands will be coming in and, you know, they're polite. They're, you know, they, they say, thank you for what you're doing. But, you know, you can tell they're, they're, they're trying to find their way. And we're really looking forward to being able to get into relationships that aren't based around coming to a service on a Sunday morning so we can build depth and get to know people. We're also preparing to receive people into membership this coming November. Uh, so you can pray for us about that. We have teaching to do, but really we have the joyful work of just deepening relationships. So just creating a lot of time for fellowship over meals, uh, putting on a lot of food events. I've heard about you guys and your food events. You know, so we're trying to walk in your footsteps. Um, but just time in homes, times going out together. Uh, 
we also are looking forward to a lot more ministry opportunities this, this year. Um, there's a, a lady who has been coming to our church who has been talking about her desire to do vacation Bible school with kids in the neighborhood. So we just want to get to know what the situation is like and see if that's an opportunity we can be involved in. Um, there's also a small preschool in the area, and that may give us some opportunities to build relationships, especially with the poorer communities in the area. And just figuring out how can we serve you guys, how can we come alongside you. So we need your continued prayers as God builds Grace Family Church and guides us in blessing those he's sending to us and in the communities around us. Because of your financial support, I've been able to pour myself into this work full time. And thank you so much for that. And I need your continued support to keep doing that. So right now, I want, I'm going to ask Ronald just to show you some pictures because I can talk, but this will give you another perspective on Grace Family Church. And I'll come and look at them with you and then I'll come back up and... We'll get into the word. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be focusing on verses 15 through 20. Between January and the end of July, we preached through this book of Colossians at Grace Family Church. Our series was entitled, Christ Over Everything, and that's the title of this message. It was a tremendous journey for us, and the first time that the vast majority of people uh, that have been coming to Grace Family Church, have ever sat through the consecutive preaching of a book of the Bible over many months. At the end of the series, one young lady came up to me and she said, oh, I understand why we did Colossians. 
It was written to a young church, and we are a young church. She was right, of course. I mean, that factored into our decision to start with this book. But what was more important to us, what we knew would benefit greatly, we'd all benefit greatly from, is the magnificent portrayal of Jesus in this short letter and how everything else in the Christian life is connected to him and to his saving work. And that's something we can never get enough of, individually and corporately. We are in constant need of being captivated over and over again by Jesus. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that as I preach, as God's Spirit speaks, that our hearts would be ignited by Jesus on display in Colossians chapter 1, 15 to 20. Somewhere, not far from here right now, there's a little boy who's on his way back home from church, and he's kind of itching to get that, that shirt that he didn't want to wear off. There's a mother who's teaching her child how to clear the table after breakfast. There's a man exhausted from another night shift who's on his way back home to his one-bedroom apartment where he lives by himself. And there's a teenage girl sending a string of emoticons to her friend in response to a meme that she received from her. Somewhere in the world, someone has decided to hide their cancer diagnosis from their relatives in hopes of sparing them pain. Somewhere a father just called his daughter, who lives on the other side of the world, for the first time in years. She sat and watched the phone ring out. Somewhere there's a farmer praying for rain and a homeless man praying that the rain would stop. Someone just won the lottery. Someone else just declared bankruptcy. Some guy carelessly drilling somewhere just hit a pipe and he's disrupted the water supply for the day for 20,000 people. And someone just shared the last meal they know they have with their friend. Somewhere in some valley untouched by human hands, flowers that no scientist has ever cataloged and whose fragrance none has smelled are blooming and dying. Somewhere the body of a whale that died is sinking to the bottom of the ocean where it will become sustenance and a home to hundreds of organisms. Lightning just struck a tree that is over 100 years old and split it right down the middle. And all of this and millions of other events are happening on a planet that orbits a star in a solar system that wouldn't even be the size of a pinprick if we could make a map of the vastness of the universe. How inconceivably small we are. Voyager 1, a space probe launched by NASA in 1977, traveling at 38,000 miles per hour, took almost 35 years to reach the edge of our solar system. It is now continuing its journey in interstellar space towards a near neighbor, a star 17.6 light years from Earth. Scientists expect that it will arrive in the vicinity of that star in 40,000 years. But it will stop sending messages home long before that. The batteries powering the equipment in Voyager 1 will die in about six years. Somewhere in that vastness, among the 100 billion galaxies that we've been able to detect, stars are being born and others are dying each day without their light ever being seen by the human eye. We have no idea how big the universe is, and what we do know boggles the mind. 
Yet standing over all the billions of happenings on our tiny world and over every square inch of this inconceivably massive universe is a song of sorts, a hymn. It's the often unnoticed backbeat under all things, everything that was, everything that is, everything that will be. It touches every event and reaches every crevice, gathering everything in the universe in its joy and grandeur. And all things resonate with the truth it trumpets about the one who is over everything. And it says, reading from verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ stands supreme over everything. That's the heart of this passage. The big idea in this amazing hymn in honor of Jesus. Jesus Christ stands supreme over everything. This passage is one of the mountain peaks in the Bible. It towers even over all the truths surrounding it. Lifting our eyes to behold in breathtaking wonder. Jesus of Nazareth, God's anointed king. Supreme in creation and supreme in reconciliation. And we will worshipfully contemplate these truths under those two headings. Christ, supreme in creation. Christ, supreme in reconciliation. So first, Christ, supreme in creation. Immediately, in two short phrases, Paul makes two jaw-dropping claims about Jesus. Look in your Bibles at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus has an entirely unique relationship to God the Father and a unique relationship to the created order. Firstly, his relationship to God. The Greek word used here, translated image, can also mean representation. And this is a word from which we get our English word icon. Sometimes it was used to refer to a picture of someone. So there's a historical example where a soldier writes a letter to his father and he includes a portrait in it and he refers to that portrait of himself as an icon. So it helps us to understand that Jesus is a portrait of God. Yet Paul is using it to indicate more than the fact that Jesus resembles God. He's saying that Jesus is the flawless and comprehensive manifestation of God. That's what the writer of Hebrews echoes in chapter 1 of that letter, saying that Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Now, most people in Jamaica believe in God. And I I was doing my research in preparation for this, and so I looked at a survey for the United States, and that's still the case here in the United States. Most people believe in God. But perhaps increasingly, most of those people don't seem to have much of a clear sense of what God is like. And that leaves people filling in the blanks with their own speculation. 
and inevitably making a God in their own image, with their own preferences, often one who is always understanding of them in their failings and generally is low maintenance. Do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus Christ makes the invisible God visible. And how do we see Jesus? We see him in the pages of the Bible. We get glimpses of him in the Old Testament as he's prefigured and prophesied about. And those glimpses come into high definition clarity in the Gospels where the stories of him are told. Look at Jesus. Look at him calming the storm, casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, demonstrating God's power over natural forces, over demonic forces, over sickness, and even death. Look at him having compassion on a woman who had been menstruating for 12 years, ensuring that she was not only healed, but that she was restored to community. Look at him feeding the 5,000, showing that he can meet our needs with leftovers. And that in his coming kingdom, there will be no lack. Look at him rebuking religious leaders who had turned Judaism into a means of maintaining influence and political power and were keeping people from God. Look at him willingly walking to his death, demonstrating the seriousness of sin and God's wrath towards it, while simultaneously showing God's unfathomable love towards sinners. Look at him rising from the dead, demonstrating that he is more powerful than what we fear most and has disarmed our greatest enemy. Look at him. That's where you'll see what God is like. And Paul tells us in verse 17 that this Jesus is before all things. That speaks to his pre-existence, his eternality. Before anything in this universe ever existed, Jesus existed as the perfect manifestation of the Father. What Paul is teaching here parallels what we're taught at the very start of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This same Jesus has a unique relationship to the whole created universe described in the word firstborn. Now, a lot of people have tripped over that word. And the problem is not new. In the 4th century, a guy named Arius taught that Jesus was a created being that existed before the rest of creation and is far greater than the rest of creation, but is not equal to the Father. And Arius' teaching was based in part on this verse. So, does the word firstborn mean that Jesus was created? We answer questions like that by paying close attention to the passage itself to the rest of the Bible's teachings about Jesus, and also to how the term in view is used elsewhere in the scriptures. Starting at the end of that list, there are two Old Testament passages of particular significance. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. In Psalm 89, 27, which is a psalm speaking of the messianic king, God says, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. In both, in both cases, firstborn refers not to first offspring, but to first in honor. The Colossians would have been familiar with this kind of phenomenon. You see, in the society they lived in, the firstborn son had pride of place. He was his father's exclusive heir, so that even while his father was alive, it was as if he owned everything. It was a position of supremacy. 
Paul is teaching that Jesus is preeminent over the whole created order. In verse 16, Paul tells us why Jesus is supreme in creation. It's because he is the creator. Look at it with me. For by him, which could also be rendered for in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus wasn't created. He didn't have a beginning. He's the one through whom God created everything. Jesus created everything that can be seen. And he created everything that cannot be seen. That includes spiritual powers. That's what Paul is referring to when he says thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities. There are no spiritual powers that can add anything to Jesus, supply anything he cannot supply, or rival him. He made them all and he rules over them all. That truth was very important for these Colossian believers to hear. You see, they were being told that having Jesus is nice, but you need, you need to seek your well-being in life by appeasing other spiritual forces that control different areas of your life. Now, I know that African spirituality has, has left a deep impact on New Orleans. The effect it has had in Jamaican culture means that it's not uncommon for people to be churchgoers, to come to church and to say, wow, I love Jesus, I'm grateful for all I'm learning about him. But then when a particular situation comes along, they go to the Obeyaman, who's our local witch doctor, in order to get them out of that situation or get them into a situation they want to get into. Because that's the realm of authority they've learned from the culture. One of the problems with that is that it dishonors Jesus, who created all spiritual beings and is supreme over everything he has made. And that's the case whenever we look beyond Jesus to anything else for our spiritual well-being. Everything wasn't just created by Jesus, it was all created for Jesus. Douglas Moo helpfully frames it. Christ stands at the beginning of the universe as the one through whom it came into being. And he stands at, the end, at its end as the goal of the universe. Everything exists for him. For his honor and glory and praise and majesty. The most massive celestial bodies, the tiniest particles, the brilliance of colors, the magnificence of music, the roar of a waterfall, the softness of skin. The palette of emotions, the complexity of thought, everything exists for him and was made by him. Jesus is supreme over creation, not only in having created everything, now we learn that he sustains the whole created order. Look with me at the second half of verse 17. In him, all things hold together. Now, we have discovered that the universe functions based on laws and processes. But Paul is telling us something that doesn't contradict our scientific discoveries, but goes way beyond the scope of what science can discover. Underneath and within all the laws and processes that keep the universe ticking over is Jesus sustaining everything. The universe is not automatic. Jesus did not make it, set it, and forget it, and get about his business. It's actively sustained. The perfect tense of the verb here tells us that Jesus continues to hold all things together and that without his doing so, everything would fall apart. 
It would disintegrate. It would cease to be. So think about this with me for a moment. When Jesus became human and Mary gave birth to him, he was helpless in his humanity, in need of care and sustenance, while simultaneously sustaining the life of his mother, who was feeding him and caring for him. One songwriter captures this mind-boggling truth this way. As he sleeps upon the hay, he holds the moon and stars in place. Because Jesus was truly human, he got thirsty, just like we do. And he quenched that thirst with water, even as he held the two molecules of hydrogen and the molecule of oxygen together. When Jesus was crucified, the soldiers had the strength to abuse him, to spit on him, to nail him to a cross, because he was actively giving them strength. He couldn't have been held on the cross by wood and iron if he was not holding that wood and iron together. We modern Westerners don't often think of ourselves as idolaters. That's those people in the past or those people over there who bow down to little statuettes. But do you know what idolatry is? Idolatry is giving first place in our hearts and lives to anything apart from Jesus. So when we put ourselves first, when we look out for number one, and number one is me, when the center of our lives is a quest for self-actualization, we worship an idol. When our lives are defined by the pursuit of sexual satisfaction or financial independence or career success or power and influence or fame and not the pursuit of a life which pleases Jesus, we are worshiping idols. That means that many of us Christians are often guilty of idolatry. Sometimes we're glad to have Jesus as our co-pilot riding in the passenger seat while we drive our lives to whatever we think will truly satisfy us. And yet, he sustains our lives, moment by moment. He even sustains us when we're actively rebelling against our creator. When we curse men, and when we curse God, we do so with the breath that God is giving us. When we hurt those around us who are made in God's image, he sustains us even as we dishonor him and damage those he has made. Yet he holds out mercy to us. And that's what we turn our attention to now. We have beheld Christ supreme in creation. Now we behold Christ supreme in reconciliation. Reconciliation implies that something is broken. And I mean, if you talk to anyone around you, talk to the people that you know at work, talk to your neighbors, everyone around us knows that something is broken. In this section, in this section of the Christ hymn, Paul teaches that in Jesus, God was reconciling all things to himself. In that, we're being shown the scale of the damage. The damage is literally cosmic in scale. And we're being shown the scale of the rescue operation that God undertook. And the epicenter of that rescue operation is the church. One of the reasons that the church is important to me, one of the reasons that I'm delighted to be pouring myself into planting a church, planting a local church in Jamaica, in in St. Catherine, is that the church is tremendously important to Jesus. Everyone belongs to Jesus because he made everyone. But the church doubly belongs to Jesus because he created it through his resurrection from the dead. 
This local gathering of believers is a tiny subset of the global church, which is made up of believers all over the world. Those who gather in local churches all over the world are a visible manifestation of the church, which is ultimately made up of all of God's people in the past, in the present, and in the future. Only God sees and knows that church. Look at verse 18 for a second. Paul says of Jesus, he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus has a unique relationship to his church. He governs and sustains his people. That's what the word head indicates. These Colossian believers had put their faith in Christ and were looking for spiritual well-being. But as I mentioned, what was threatening this local church was teaching that said that Jesus was a good start, but insufficient to keep them going and growing. Paul wants them to know that Jesus is not just a doorway to spiritual well-being. He's not just the first rung on the ladder. He's in charge and every blessing flows from him. Look in your Bibles at Colossians 2.19. Paul warns these believers about not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. That means that if these Colossians are looking for fullness, they'd be fools to look away from Jesus. If we are looking for our comprehensive well-being, we'd be fools to look away from Jesus too, or to seek to add anything to him. Paul goes on, back in verse 18 of chapter 1, to describe Jesus as the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Those phrases combined point to Jesus as the founder, not of a new organization, but of a new creation. Again, firstborn speaks of preeminence. Jesus is supreme in reconciliation because he established the new people of God in his resurrection. Now, many of you know the stories in the Gospels. When Jesus was on earth, there were were several occasions on which he raised people from the dead. But none of those resurrections was like his resurrection. He rose with a glorified body, unable to die again. And in doing so, he founded a new humanity. All his people, his church, will experience a resurrection just like his. That's what we sang about this morning. We suffer now in various ways. Different ones of you are battling illness. Whether those be debilitating conditions that make your days and nights more more difficult or life-threatening diseases that you've suddenly found out about. Some among us battle mental illness. I don't know what you face each day or what you're going to face in the coming week, much less in the coming years. But our stability is found in who Jesus is and who we are in him. F.F. Bruce comments, For those who have been redeemed by Christ, the universe holds no ultimate terrors. They know that their redeemer is also creator, ruler, and goal of all. Now the road we've been walking arrives at its destination. Look at the last phrase in verse 18. That in everything he might be preeminent. Another translation says, sorry, so that he might come to have first place in everything. That is the purpose at work here. God's intention is for all things to be brought under under his rule through Jesus. But pay attention to how all of this has been communicated. He is, 
He is. He is. He is that he might be. Jesus is not aspiring to be preeminent. He's not trying to become something he is not. He's not trying to elevate himself. His supremacy is fully deserved. It's intrinsic. For him to be honored as preeminent is to be seen for who he truly is. One of the most significant truths we're taught in the New Testament is the already not yet nature of the new creation. It has already broken into this world, but its effects are not being, are not being fully seen right now, not yet. The book of Hebrews says of Jesus that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, his sitting down does not speak of relaxation. He's not on a porch with a fan with a glass of lemonade just chilling. It speaks of rulership. He's sitting on the throne of the universe and he rules from there. Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus has been waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Jesus is already supreme. And it's just a matter of time until the full effects of that are seen. Peter O'Brien sums this up well. Because Christ is the beginning and the firstborn in resurrection as well as in creation, he has therefore become preeminent in all things. Look at verses 19 and 20. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul now tells us of the father's joy in performing the work of reconciliation through his son Jesus. God the father is all in and he's redeeming all things. Again, Paul is firing a shot at the false teachers that were threatening to corrupt the faith of this young church. The fullness is in Jesus. All of God's power, all of his excellences, all of his character, all of his glory. It always was and it always will be. And God is pleased for that fullness to be exerted and displayed in reconciling all things to himself. Therefore, the Father is fully represented and fully participating in the work of reconciliation. What that means is that no matter what you've done, you don't have to wonder if God can reconcile you to himself. You don't have to wonder if the cross can purchase forgiveness for your sins. The same God who made everything is exerting his indescribable power to fix what has been broken. When our ancestors, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God, the entire creation was cursed, subjected to futility and to decay. The work of reconciliation that Jesus has performed will affect everything in the created universe. The cross is not just about the forgiveness of our sins. It's about the restoration of all things. And that should raise some questions. If God is reconciling all things to himself, does that mean that all people will eventually be reconciled to him? Will everyone be saved? Will Satan and his demonic forces be restored to right relationship with God? These questions are important because underneath them is a very personal question. Uh, a, a personal question about me, about you, about people you know. Does it matter ultimately whether I or anyone else trust in Jesus for salvation? 
Doesn't matter whether you're a neighbor who you know and you have great conversation with and serves you, is a wonderful person. Doesn't matter if they know Jesus. Doesn't matter if your cousin who you love to spend time with and you, you love all of the same things and you just connect so well. Does it matter if they come to faith in Jesus? In Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. Paul tells us that when Jesus died on the cross, he disarmed hostile spiritual forces and triumphed over them. The picture here is one of military conquest. The reconciliation that Paul is speaking of here includes the idea of pacification. Now, one way to bring peace is to offer it. Parents know this. You're you're interacting with your kids and you, you kind of prompt them. You say, you guys need to work this out. Another way to secure peace is by defeating and decimating your enemies. Jesus has accomplished both in the cross. He has secured peace for all of us who will receive his undeserved offer of salvation, bought with his own blood. But if we reject his offer and continue in rebellion, he will treat us as what we are, his enemies. Now, when we preach that truth, we don't celebrate it in a callous way as if delighting in people's condemnation. What we celebrate is the triumph of Jesus, the execution of justice, and the end of evil and suffering. If we remain as God's enemies, we will receive what is coming to us. All rebellion will be quashed. The universe will be pacified. When we as Christians tell others that Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, we're not imposing our preferences on people. Convictions are not ice cream flavors. We're not going around the world telling people, you need to love strawberry and only strawberry ice cream. If God is reconciling all things to himself in Christ, who will be reconciled to God that is not reconciled through Jesus? No one. That's why what you're doing, the massive investment you've made in Alpha over these 18 years, uh, in running the course, in the administration, in the time you put into it, is worth it. That's why it's worth it to look at that list of three people you've written down and pray and ask God for boldness to invite them. That might be uncomfortable, but it's worth it. If people in New Orleans do not come face to face with Jesus and put their faith in him, they cannot be saved. I've gained a greater appreciation for the complexity of U.S. politics during my time living here in the States. One of the many issues that I see in the news these days is the immigration crisis. Now, it's clearly a deeply divisive issue which has led to much outrage on both sides, and it involves the lives of people made in the image of God. With this issue, as with all things, as believers, we want our consciences to be shaped by what the Bible teaches. But imagine for a moment a scenario with me. What if the U.S. government opened its arms to all those coming but insisted that they should come through a particular port of entry that's accessible to all of them? I mean, imagine the outrage then on the part of the refugees. I mean, who do they think they are? How dare they tell people how they are to enter their country? Imagine standing with a refugee who has trudged more than 1,200 miles from Guatemala and was now just outside that port of entry. Imagine hearing him fume at the idea that there should be only one port of entry if he's to enter the U.S. Railing at the thought that everyone should be forced to accept this means. Imagine this guy ranting that he's not doing it. That he doesn't want to be a part of anything that is set up in such a close-minded and bigoted way. Imagine watching him pick up his backpack with all his worldly possessions and sling it over his increasingly emaciated frame. 
and start to trudge back to where he was coming from. Now, if you think that analogy misrepresented the case, then you're right. It did. You see, when it comes to being reconciled to God, there are no refugees walking 1,200 miles willing to give up their old lives to get in. Jesus, God's son, the heir of the kingdom, left the safety of his home and journeyed across an impossible chasm that separated us from him. We had staged a coup against God, the rightful ruler of everything. He broke down the wall that we had built in our sin. He came to where we were suffering. And he suffered. He experienced our suffering and so much more. And he said, if you'll follow me, I'll lead you to a place that is better than your wildest imagination. And I'll share everything that is mine with you. I have satisfied the terms of peace. He is the only one who came looking for us. That's a better representation of the case. The one who is supreme over the work of reconciliation and over his whole creation is the one who came to find us. He is the rightful ruler and the only savior. Every now and then we say the phrase, this changes everything. I mean, I've been off a job, a job in another country. This changes everything. I'm pregnant. Well, not me personally, but this changes everything. <laughs> a hurricane is heading our way. I know you guys had that experience some weeks ago. We were praying for you. But, you know, this changes everything. Many of the things we say that about, while significant, don't change everything. But the fact that Jesus stands supreme over everything affects, well, everything. It really does demand that everything in our lives change. If you have not been reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus' death on the cross, then Jesus offers you terms of peace right here and right now. And if you have questions about that, or if you want to respond to those terms, please don't leave here today without speaking with somebody. You can speak with any of the pastors. If you don't know who to speak with, ask an usher. They'll direct you to the right person. If you have been reconciled to God through Jesus, the supremacy of Christ demands, firstly, that we see or think about everything differently. Then it demands that we seek to live our lives in greater and greater conformity to the reality that he ought to have first place in everything. First place in your finances. First place in how you spend your your, your leisure time. Is it leisure or leisure here? Which one? Yes, okay, yes, okay. First place in how you think about your sexuality. First place in your political views and value systems. First place in marriage and parenting. First place in your educational pursuits. First place in your work and in your retirement. First place in your friendships. There is literally no space in our lives in which we can legitimately look at Jesus and say, Mine. And there's literally no space in our lives where Jesus does not look at us and say, mine. But Jesus does not simply make a demand and then sit back with his arms folded, waiting for us to step up to the plate. He continues to woo us and to win us, to amaze us with his grace and to win our confidence with his love. And through his word, he teaches us that what it looks like to give him first place 
uh, is to live a life pleasing to him. So the rest of Colossians got into that. It was a joy to walk through that with our people and just see all of the ways in which God calls us and empowers us to live a life that pleases him. His spirit is in us. And he's shaping in us hearts that want to please him. Hearts that will gladly cooperate with him. That's the submission that honors him. Yielding not to a tyrant who has overpowered us, but to a benevolent rescuer who has won our admiration and our confidence. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing that we can lift our voices and pray to you because of Jesus. It's amazing that you hear us, Lord. You are high and lifted up. And we are so small. But you listen, Lord. You're attentive to our prayers. Lord, I want to pray for this community now. I want to pray that as they continue to pursue them, Lord, you'd continue to shape their hearts and give them the desire that you should be preeminent in everything. Lord, continue to search hearts and expose people uh, to the ways in which, Lord, we all are, are idolaters. We all continue to cling to other things, to look to them for satisfaction, Lord. Bring conviction in those moments, Lord, and help us to see that you have freely given us all things in Jesus. All your promises are yes and amen in Christ. We pray, Lord, that this community would experience not just personally the fullness of Christ, but would share the fullness of Christ with others around them, especially as they head into this season of outreach through Alpha. I pray that many, Lord, uh, would reach out to others and would accompany them, would be with them throughout the journey. As you draw people to yourself, as you draw people away from the precipice of death and into your loving arms. I pray in Jesus' name.